Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Sarah Gonzalez, for going on over to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and becoming a patron of the original cast. And I hope you enjoy being a part of this ever-growing community, and I hope you enjoy your access to the original cast of the movies in this, our year of sequels and biopics. We did Funny Lady. We did Grease 2. We're doing Evita here this month with Billy Reese. Upcoming, we've got Staying Alive, 24-Hour Party People, Lady Sing the Blues, Shock Treatment. Did you know the Rocky Horror Picture? show had a sequel it does it's called shock treatment it came out in 1981 patreon.com slash original cast pod all right here's the show whenever my world falls apart i never lose hope or lose heart whatever the form of the storm that may brew not with you to lean on darlings you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a music director of great note. He's originated three roles on Broadway, but will always be, to me, the first person I ever worked with who was drawn by Al Hirschfeld. It's David Loud, everybody. Hello. It's so nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. (laughs) That intro took you off guard a little bit, I see. That's good. I don't often think of myself as... My Hirschfeld character, but it's true. <laughs> well, you're right there on the cover of, of the Merrily album, right up in the, yeah, in the exactly. corner, right? So you do. You, you left corner. Prominently, it's a, a, one of Hirschfeld's more, like I think, viewed images, probably, since yeah. it is the album cover. My um, eye is a big spiral of terror. Yes, you have those great wild eyes that he draws, <laughs> which is not something I think of when I think of you, so that's pretty funny. Uh, but this is great. We're, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Al Hirschfeld. We'll talk about Merrily, certainly. But uh, you're actually here to talk about the Scottsboro Boys. Read the morning papers every day. Read what all the gossip columns say. Hey, 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 hey! Join in the merriment. Come on, make some noise. Hey, hey, say goodbye to the Scottsboro interesting uh i always ask this question of all my guests and i think your answer is going to be uh a little bit more uh more specific than some how did the scottsboro boys come into your life oh my uh well i i was very fortunate in my career to have a long relationship with john kander and fred and and susan stroman and tommy thompson and uh towards the end of fred's life uh, he died in, in 2004. Uh, there were three, three big musicals that we had never gotten to Broadway when he died. There was The Visit, The Scottsboro Boys, and Curtains. And um, it became sort of our mission to get those pieces up. Um, after his death, John Kander thought that he would retire after doing that. Of course, he's done no such thing. He's been right. continuing to write constantly <laughs> since then. Um, he's just a fountain of music still. Uh, but I think when Fred died, they had just completed a first draft of the Scottsboro Boys. And we did a reading of it around Susan Stroman's kitchen table. I think Deb Monk played most of the boys. and <laughs> 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 played, the, uh, played the rest of them. Uh, and it was this haunting, wildly disturbing and crazy, uh, crazily ambitious retelling of that story using the format of the minstrel show 
to um, eliminate the injustice that had taken place down in Alabama. And we were all so excited by it. Uh, the, the production of the vineyard, I think, came after a reading or a workshop or two that we had done, but it was essentially essentially the show that, that John and Fred had written mm. in, in their first draft and polished and, and fixed. And mm-hmm. John Kander did end up finishing some of the lyrics for it himself, but the show didn't really change all that much. Hmm. From that first reading at the, at From the, the first table? That, that I was at around Stroh's table. Hmm. It is very high concept. Which is not for Kander Neb unusual, obviously. Yeah, in, in the from, same way that Chicago is essentially a vaudeville act right. and tells its story using that that form, and uh, Scott's Boys is, is similarly constructed. Uh, it's a and it's dangerous territory mm-hmm. to be in. Oh yeah, uh, but I think very very effective and strange and discomforting in all the right ways. Do you think you could, this is, oh man, because it's a hard show. I mean, it's a show like like Parade in that in that way, where it's about, you know, a terrible miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And it's hard to watch. But unlike the, unlike Parade, which sort of runs straight at the story, the, right. you know, theory, um, Scott's Poor Boys, I think, tries to make a, broaden the scope of the story by making it very presentational. And obviously with that bookend opening and closing um, Mm -hmm. at the bus stop, tries to really take the story up and out and into the world and make it less, you know, Parade is really Leo Frank's story. And it's a story about a marriage. You know, it's about those two people coming together through this terrible this terrible thing that happens. It's Gunsboro Boys is about America. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it, it's about everything. And it felt, yes. listening to it again here, I mean, because it, it came out in 2010. Yes. Listening to it again, it felt, it's it, it's vibrant. It's uncomfortable now, even, you know, two days ago when I listened to it. It's, it's just absolutely still as effective now as it was a decade ago, if not more even. Well, that's what Kander and Ebb have always done. Mm-hmm. In cabaret is is the exact same mm-hmm. thing. It's, it takes the format of cabaret and plugs this story into it and tells it that way and becomes twice as powerful because of the resonances between the form and the story. Uh, the Scottsboro Boys leaves no um, doubt as to which side of the... Uh, in which side it, it comes down in favor of. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a very sympathetic <laughs> telling of the story, um, which made it so ironic when people were picketing and protesting the show without having seen it. Right. It was racist and, um, and unsympathetic, which is exactly the opposite of it. Mm-hmm. But it does, it does raise some uncomfortable feelings in an audience when you see it. And, and, the, that we did at the Vineyard and then on Broadway uh, had blackface in it. You know, the, mm-hmm. the all the boys put on blackface for that last number, and it was shocking to see that on stage. I happened to be backstage the first time at the Vineyard that the actors were putting it on, and they were so upset. Some of them were crying, mm. and I wondered to myself whether it was worth it, mm. worth the emotional trauma of 
reenacting this ancient, horrible tradition. But seeing it on stage, you, you got instantly what the blackface did, which is it, re- it erased their characters. Mm-hmm. It, they came on the, the stage at the end of the evening. We knew them all at this point. They each played one or two roles. We, we knew everything about each boy, but you couldn't tell who they were. Mm-hmm. It erased their personality and it became this horrifying metaphor for how easy it is to see people as part of a group instead of as individuals. And it, it should be said, I mean, for those, we, we should do a plot summary probably, but it, it should be said that for those who just heard that, that all of the actors were African-American who were putting on the blackface. Yeah, so it was a, <laughs> you know, but it was a, so it was that sort of like metatextual layer on top of, you know, what was already right. going on with this. Because it was only, John Cullum is the only white actor in the production, right. correct? Yeah. The Scottsboro Boys played all the women and all the men. Uh, the white men, the 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 black men in the story themselves. There, there was also the character of the lady in our production who watched mm-hmm. everything, had, had a scene at the beginning and the end. But essentially the whole thing is those those boys on stage. And Stroh's production was so minimal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used 11 chairs and a few boards. It's, um, it's the kind of theater I love to do, which is theater that ultimately takes place in the audience's imagination. Mm-hmm. It forces, it requires the audience to participate. How did you get involved with Candor and Ab? Because you, you were involved with them for, for a number of years. If well, I'm I was mistaken. so lucky. I, when I first got to New York in 1984, I auditioned for a play called Billy Bishop Goes to War, which uh, I did up at the Portland Stage Company with Scott Ellis. Mm. He was the other actor. Billy Bishop Goes to War is a sweet little strange Canadian musical about a World War I flying ace. Scott played 18 parts, including uh, a grand dame, without a single costume change. And I played the piano and uh, sang a few songs with him and helped him tell the story. Mm-hmm. We did it at the Portland Stage Company, and then it was so, uh, Scott was so terrific in it, and the show was so inexpensive. We ended up touring around the country for about two years, mm. filling in at regional theaters who were broke. <laughs> they would cancel their big production of you know, as you like it, or Hamlet, and they would book us in. We were, I think we had a chair and a piano and a, you know, a toy airplane, and that was the whole thing. So we toured for about two years with that, and that bonds you mm-hmm. with that one. So when Scott became a Broadway director, all of a sudden I was his music director, and that's how that's how I met. Him. That was my long answer to how I met Kendra and Ed. Was that from? Was so? Was the first? Was it? Uh, and the world goes round with with the beginning of that, or yeah, was it okay. exactly? Scott had this idea. He he wanted to wanted to be a director, mm-hmm. and he had an idea that he could take Kendra and Ed songs and, without putting anything extra on them, uh, create an evening of theater just by serving up the songs exactly as they were mm-hmm. meant to be. You know, with the great actor singing them. Again, theater that happens in the audience's mind is so much more powerful than enormous scenery and sure. effect. Well, so, <laughs> that's true. I mean, and you've you've done both, obviously, in your in your in your yes, career. Yes, I toured with Liz, and I did Ragtime on Broadway. Right, I know from big scenery. But. Well, and you did, but you did curtains too. I mean, the last time <laughs> I saw you was in the pit at, at curtains, and uh, it is. I'm so interested, David, in the fact that I mean, you are a performer and a music director, and 
have, you know, originated roles on Broadway that required the ability to play the piano or conduct. I mean, so the, the you know, you were in obviously in, in master class in Merrily, but I'm so interested in is it Sasha in Curtains? Is that the character? Sasha, yes. Yes. How did the, <laughs> was that the was the I mean, Curtains is obviously a show that has again, not a huge metatextual level to it, but as a musical that's actively going on in front of the audience and the the orchestra is acknowledged and or the orchestra of the show within the show. Absolutely, yes. Was that role developed for you? Because you do sing. You, I mean, that was act two. Is, is, as my wife says, she always laughs her head off when, when you come up because she just thinks of you going, <laughs> The man is dead. The man is dead. This is no joke, the man did croak, and now he's dead. He's breathed his last, he's in the past. He's lost his lease, so rest in peace, the man is dead. And so was that role you know, written for you because they knew you were going to be the music director, thought, oh great, David will do it, he can sing, or was that sort of the conceit sort of from the beginning? It was actually there, there at the beginning. Curtains was written a long time ago. Oh, really? It around, it was written right after they wrote Woman of the Year, which is 1980-81. Yeah. They wrote it actually for Tommy Toon uh, to direct. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. With Peter, Peter Stone wrote the book. And that production never happened. Mm-hmm. But um, Scott Ellis dusted it off, and we did a reading of this show that they had abandoned basically mm. and it was i think seven hours long the first time we, we went through it it was just <laughs> it never stopped and there was a conductor um who had a few lines in it mm-hmm. and so of course at the readings i always i always did that part mm-hmm. and i just never cut it i was i was expected <laughs> i was expected for Sasha to disappear but nobody cut him and even when peter stone died and Mm-hmm. Rupert Holmes took over the script. He didn't cut it either. So there I was opening night, singing a little song at the top of the bank. So funny. It is so funny. Well, it's, that's funny that it's such an old, a sh- it old was show. Very it was because it it came along. I mean, it was in two thousand eight. It was it's sort of right at the crest of when that form of the self referential musical was becoming. Something everybody was doing, you know, post Drowsy okay. Chaperone, even pre Book of Mormon, when that like apexed a little bit, um, where you have this character, you know, David Hyde Pierce and his Tony winning turn doing the the cop who wants to be a musical star, <laughs> and it is just a lot of fun. But it's it's funny that they were so far ahead, you know, twenty some years ahead of that curve a little bit, and yet yeah. not so surprising because it is Cantor Nap. <laughs> you know, they, that was that's the thing about John and Fred; they were always ahead. People were always surprised and put off by them. And then 10 years later would describe them as geniuses. I mean, you see that original production of Chicago. Nobody was ready for it. Right. Now the revival has run longer than, you know, anything. Than anything. <laughs> longer than Chorus Line. Yeah, right. um, yeah. They do have that. It's a dubious distinction. And Scottsboro Boys is one of the two shows. They have the two shows, I believe, that were nominated for the most Tonys without winning a Tony. With Scott's yes, and I conducted both of, both of them. <laughs> I point that out in my book. I didn't. I didn't realize that anybody else had noticed that. <laughs> it's a this you know sort of odd record, but it's also funny that it is. It's two shows that are 
very well respected. It's not, you know, just they just opened up against juggernauts of right. of of the theater, you know, opening against Chorus Line the first time and uh and uh, Book of Mormon the second time. The, you know, it's, it's it's that's what the everything you always have to remember about awards is that they are are very dubious because it is all you're, it's so much of it is luck. <laughs> so much you're going up against. You know, if you open up against Hamilton, you're just there's nothing you can do about it. Shows shouldn't have to compete with each other anyway. I get. Mm. I wish there was a, a a more kind way to to get publicity for them mm. for the shows each spring rather than make them compete with each other. Uh, but. Yes, nobody's lost more Tony Awards than me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a well, <laughs> That's a great slogan. I like that. I like that a lot. It's no. <laughs> well, so I've actually that's we've never talked about this on the show. We've we've talked to people who've won Tonys and been nominated for Tonys, but I've never asked, sort of thought about it from a a campaign standpoint. Like, is it when you have? When you're in a show or music, because you're at a show, you know, as me, even when you're music directing, you're at the show every night. Yeah. Is there that energy about, you know, in the show and then on the street that, you know, the shows are nominated against each other and we're competing with each other and there's obviously ad campaigns yeah, that, going back and forth. Is it, is it that really the energy? It can get that way. Mm. Um, I mean, famously, the competition between Nine and Dreamgirls was mm. a bitter battle between Tommy Toon and Michael Bennett. Um, I mean, two such extraordinary shows. Mm. Why should why should one have to live at the expense of the other's death? Mm. You know? I felt that the, the year that we were, that Ragtime was up against the Lion King. Mm-hmm. You know, we were literally thrown to the lions and the lion <laughs> cheered us up and spat us out. <laughs> they won best. Musical. We ran two years, and they're still running. So you say you came to New York in '84. Um, well, I had been in New York to do Merrily. I, I was going to say, but that's not entirely true. <laughs> I went back to school and finished up after that. After you did that, so you came down to New York just for the open calls for Merrily. I was in New Haven at Yale. Mm-hmm. I was a sophomore at Yale, and uh, I saw the ad in Variety saying that they were looking for 15 to 25 year olds to to be in Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince's new musical. And so, yeah, I took the train to New York and stood in the longest line of actors uh, who were from the ages of 15 to about 75, <laughs> all trying to look like teenagers. <laughs> and I wasn't actually seen that day, but I got close, close enough to the door that they collected my resume mm. with the people who had waited all day. And Joanna Merlin actually called me in my dorm room at Yale to invite me to New York to audition for them. I think maybe because I played the piano and they needed people who played the piano to be mm-hmm. in the cans. In but for a couple of months, I went every two weeks, I would go, take the train to New York and sing my songs for Hal Prince and then go back to New Haven and try to try not to fantasize about being in a Broadway show. But they, they narrowed it down to the 23 of us who uh, were cast in November. It was this long, grueling day. It started out with about 100, 100 kids and ended up with 23 of us being offered the job. Then we had to wait and wait and wait another nine months for the show to start. It was, uh, yeah. it was, it was like a, a musical theater marathon. So not too long ago, uh, I had Liz Calloway on the show. Oh, the best. And um, 
Yeah, so she she described a lot, a lot of detail the audition process and then the tremendous delay that happened. But I wanted, did want to ask you how much you, your involvement in that show was becoming was because you could play the piano, and which led me to to think of another question, which uh, which is a very simple one, but I don't uh, is uh, something I don't know is when did you start playing the piano? Uh, I started when I was six years old. I took uh, piano lessons in Cincinnati, where I grew up. I had a wonderful teacher named Miss Corn. She uh, taught me how to read music and uh, taught me how to think about music also. She, she didn't really pay any attention to the fact that I was six years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, my family then moved to the Adirondacks. I grew up at this school called the North Country School, which is on an organic farm up in the Adirondacks near Lake Placid. And this, this school, which was focused on, you know, connecting kids to the earth and mountain climbing and, you know, being manly. Oh, wow. Also had a fantastic music theater uh, composer. He was the, he would write a musical every year for Thanksgiving when all the parents would visit. And all the students would put on this show that he would write every year. And they were, they were fantastic. Hmm. He, he would be inspired by whatever students could sing. And, you know, if some girl reminded him of Cleopatra, he would write a musical about Cleopatra. <laughs> uh, and on and on. Uh, and he, he just sort of demonstrated for me that you could be infinitely creative in the form of musical theater. He had no ambition of bringing his shows to Broadway or anything. He just wanted to make something good for the, the parents of the students that year. Hmm. Uh, but he was exactly the kind of artist I wanted to be, which was somebody who didn't give a flying fuck as to what anybody thought. He just wrote what he wanted to write. Mm -hmm. um, and we, the students loved doing his, his shows. They were very adult and they had um, surprisingly mature lyrics. <laughs> 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 so I sort of got stage struck through, through the teachers that I, that I was blessed to have. Mm -hmm. I read Mozart's Act One mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to be in theater my whole life. I really did. When I discovered Sondheim, you know, well before Merrily, mm -hmm. I was a huge Sondheim fan. Uh, I had the albums of Company and A Little Night Music and Follies. And when I, I finally got to see Sweeney Todd, that was the first Broadway, sh the first Sondheim show I discovered in the theater as opposed to on, on the cast album. Oh, wow. Um, my high school took a trip to Broadway to see a musical on Sweeney Todd. And actually, sitting next to me was Michael Cerberus, who was oh. a classmate of mine. Oh, really? And we ended up doing Sweeney Todd together. Yes. <laughs> Doyle's production, much later. We, if somebody had said to us that when we were in high school watching that production, that, 20 years later, we would be doing it on Broadway. I think we would have thought they were insane. Oh, my gosh. Right. That's remarkable. That's a, it's <laughs> quite a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like a common one. I see there's a lot of stories like that in the theater. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Well, there aren't that many of us, really. Well, that's true. <laughs> we can bear the business. <laughs> so, well, actually, that leads me to another question, though, with, like, merrily, you know, you get your dream comes true and you and then it the show Absolutely. closes obviously and 
as I, you just went, you went back to school after that. I went, well, I thought I was going to be taking two years off to do. Sure. The follow-up musical to Sweeney Todd. But I was back after one semester. <laughs> was anybody looking around saying, David, what are you doing here? Like, I thought you were. <laughs> well, I, I had sort of changed my career goals after that. Mm. I, I went into Merrily thinking, you know, how fun to be an actor mm-hmm. on stage. And I, I left it thinking, I don't know if I belong up here. Hmm. I don't know if I'm quite talented enough to be, you know, people like Liz Calloway belong on Broadway. Yeah. A voice like that and the way she can connect with an audience. When I finished Merrily, I thought, the person I really want to be in this whole room is Paul Gimignan. Hmm. He just radiated strength and commitment and power from that pit. And he was so musical. The way he um, conducted the show was so inspiring to me. And I, I, I sort of changed my focus and started looking for jobs as an assistant music director, not as chorus boy number four who played the piano. Sure. Uh, <laughs> your name was Ted. You say it on the album. We know, we know who you were. <laughs> yeah. Teddy, too. Ted and Teddy, too. <laughs> well, that's it. So before you did that show, did you have a sense of what a music director did on a show like that? I don't think most people know what a music director does on a show. Even those in the business now, mm-hmm. it's a very complicated job. It's mm-hmm. A wonderful one. I love, I love the job. It's the ultimate, you're the ultimate collaborator in the musical, mm-hmm. uh, because you have to, you have to connect with everyone. You know, you have to be the choreographer's best friend. You have to be the director's best friend, and then you have to support the actors through their performance. And you're you're part performer yourself as conductor, and part creative team. You know handing out notes notes and maintaining the show. It's a very specific place to exist in the structure of the musical. Physically, it's that way too. You're, you're caught between three worlds. Mm. With the music down below you, and the show up in front of you, and the audience behind you, on the back of your neck. Mm. You feel everything that the entire theater is feeling from that spot on the podium. It's a very... Um, addictive place to be and i certainly you know loved my time on the podium and you're there i mean that's the funny thing to me you're is there, every night. You're there right. every night how long do you stay with a show well i i liked being on site in charge i mean mm. the longest run i did on broadway was ragtime which was a, a solid two years mm. i would happily have stayed longer i mean it was such a such a glorious experience to, to work on that score in that huge, huge, overly expensive production. <laughs> you could tell it was going to close, but it was, it was so nice to have all that money being spent on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how involved were you, in, let's just stick with Scott's Bar Boys, in the actual arrangement of the music on that show, especially the vocal harmonies, which are so well, important to it? It all depends on, on the style of the composer that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm working with... Steve, Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, mm-hmm. they come in with all the vocal arrangements thought of, done. You know, Steve is a wonderful vocal arranger himself. He has very clear ideas of what he wants. And he writes it all out perfectly in finale, and we do exactly what he wrote. John Kander is a much more flexible composer. Mm-hmm. He comes in with a tune. He wants to talk to the choreographer, the director. How, how is the number going to be structured? He defers to me on choral arrangements and if there's harmony how that's going to work 
he wants to be consulted on every decision that is being made. Hmm. He can score more collaboration between the team and himself and not something that he presents, you know, tied hmm. up in a bow at the beginning of rehearsal. So on Scottsboro Boys, I actually did, you know, a large amount of the vocal arranging and the structuring of the way that the numbers are routined. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing about being a music director is you never quite know how much work you're going to have to do. It all depends on <laughs> the style of the, of the composer of the individual show. Do you think that there, those two approaches are, is this sort of Candor's representing more of an uh, older school of music theater composition and that the Flaherty and Aarons would represent a newer sort of, you know, Some extent, but they're, they're composers like Bill Finn, mm-hmm. who are very, you know, contemporary, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't really write much music out themselves and mm-hmm. count on their orchestrator or their music director or various pianists to get things notated the way they want them. It's not really that, not really that extreme a difference. I mean, the music mm. still gets created, mm-hmm. but um, there's something to be said for both for both ways, I think. I mean, I love hearing the specificity of what Stephen Lynn writes, or the way Sondheim writes. Mm-hmm. But there's also something to be gained from you know, the collaboration of a choreographer, a director, a music director, and a composing team on um, the way a big number is structured, for instance. Mm-hmm. That is something I really took. I talked about this a little bit with with Chris Catelli when he was on the show. But I, my chief rem- memory, and the thing I really took out of working with you guys on Land Where the Good Songs Go, was the incredible sense of collaboration between you and Stafford and and Chris, and being 23 at the time, just sort of assumed this is how it was. You know, like I just assumed this is what it, oh, this is how like it that. worked. Yeah. Um, but it d- did me very, very well because that was what I, when I started directing, that's the room, that's what I took into the room. You know, that was oh, the okay. attitude I took in. And it wasn't until I worked on other productions and other capacities and, and as a writer on things and stuff where I started to realize, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't mm-hmm. typical. It's certainly out there, but it's, there, there's other ways that people, you know, <laughs> work that's, that's in a room. So I am <laughs> eternally grateful to you guys, though, for kicking me off on what I consider to be the right foot. And really getting, yeah, the sense of that. So in all this sort of music study and, 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 uh, and work, you know, as, as a wanting to be a music director, um, when you came to New York and ended up in, you know, another show where you were actor slash music director, did you sort of go, oh, gosh, I wish I was just music directing? Or were you just happy for the for the work? I think my work as music director has always been strengthened by my time as an actor. You know, hmm. I have a little sympathy with what, what, what they go through. Sure. It gives you good credibility, I think, from people who look at your bio and see those. I mean, because, it, it, you know, you, if you, it had been one part, or you know, it, it would have been one thing. But it's three. You, <laughs> you've done it three times over, over a period of time. You know, obviously with your debut in Merrily. But, I mean, it goes up 20-some right. years into curtains. I mean, it's not like something you did at the beginning of your career or just for a phase in the middle. It was, it's been sort of peppered throughout. The time in Masterclass was really... A vacation in a way. Oh, really? Not, well, as an actor in a play, you have to worry about your own part. Mm-hmm. 
That's it. Mm -hmm. I just had to go up, be be able to play the three arias, listen to Zoe Caldwell, be dazzling, say <laughs> a few lines, and take a bow at the end. As music director for a show, I have to worry about the chorus and the orchestra and the cutoffs and the tempos. Sure. And the casting and who left and who's angry at who. And, mm -hmm. and you know, why is the violinist elbow hitting the saxophone player tonight? <laughs> the things that you have to deal with as a music director are quite extraordinary. <laughs> I would think that as a music director, you know, in the sort of like actor's nightmare scenario of a show going wrong, the music director is is sort of the one, I mean, the stage manager out there on the front lines, but they're backstage, you know, they're hidden <laughs> from, from everything. You have yeah, to... We see the actual blood and sweat. <laughs> from where we, and it's very well lit from where we right. are. So. And, could, well, and also, as you say, you can feel... The audience, oh, yeah. you know. You can feel the terror and the panic. <laughs> right. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you were music directing where it was not falling apart, but it wasn't going great on the stage or in the pit, but the audience didn't know and you were sort of like, gosh, I hope like we can keep this going. They won't ever notice that things sort of were, fall, you know, falling apart. One down. of the most ghastly things I ever saw was, I think it was the second performance of Les Mis in the, in the, the day. And the crew had forgotten to unwind the turntable, which had to happen between every performance. Oh, gosh. So the, the turntable was in its final position as the show started, which meant that it went backwards. So, and the actors, of course, were programmed to step on the turntable, right. expecting that it would be turning a certain direction. And then they would step on because everything, of course, in Les Mis happened in the dark. Right. And they would suddenly be flat on their ass with prompts flying around them. Oh, God. We, we did the first 10 minutes of, of Les Mis with the turntable going the wrong way. I've never seen anything so chaotic <laughs> in my life. The prompts were flying. People were just hanging onto tables for, for dear life. The, the candlesticks, <laughs> the silver candlesticks. Oh, my gosh. They were turned into like weapons by people <laughs> trying to stand up. It was so sad. <laughs> I don't, you know, the audience always gives you a certain amount of grace. Sure. Thinking that it will, this must be what they right. intend to do. Yeah. But I think eventually we, we ground to a halt and half an hour later we we're able to start the show again. <laughs> but that, that's one of the ugliest pieces of chaos I've ever seen. <laughs> well, that's like, I mean, you talk about a show that, I mean, it, 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 it's all on the stage, you know, all the money's on the stage and it's, it's so dramatic and so high. And it's like, that's the joy of it is, is the high emotionality, like from the jump from look down, you know, it starts at a 10 and then climbs that, that kind of thing would just be hilarious. You know, like the, the sort of was, dramatic step on the turntable, right? Not, not to you in the pit, obviously, but it could be. Like, oh, the, oh, the props yeah. were, were falling into the pit too. <laughs> There are a whole lot of plastic onions and <laughs> all those things that are in there. There are a lot of props in Lehman's. Yeah, know. there's a lot of everything. We were in the pit by, yes. by 10 minutes. I was going to ask, did anybody end up in the pit? Did Gavroche take a, like, a serious spin? Or I guess he wasn't on yet, so it wouldn't. It wouldn't Luckily, the children were scared. Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty. That's pretty intense. I got to say, of all the oh, things that could much. go wrong, the turntable going the wrong way would be pretty, pretty cataclysmic. <laughs> we have that in Merrily too. We, what, you know, we we redid the transitions every couple of days or so. Yeah. <laughs> and during previous, we 
had practiced a new transition, you know, all afternoon. It was choreographed. We we ran it ourselves over dinner. We were psyched to do it. We mm -hmm. charged on stage doing it. And the orchestra was playing the transition from the night before because the copyist had forgotten to speak oh. the music. So that audience thought Sondheim had written something very avant-garde. <laughs> we weren't stopping. <laughs> no. Well, that's a transition. I mean, that's, you know, that's going to, at least that'll be over soon, right? It felt like about 11 years. Well, I was going to say to you, it'll feel like you're still there, right? As far as you're concerned. <laughs> that's live. You're living in that memory. Previews of Broadway shows that are changing can be very chaotic. Sure. There's a lot at stake. And, and you, again, you're right. I mean, how, so when you do a preview, are you, how are you, I would imagine your notes would carry some pretty strong weight with some of the writers as somebody who's actually watching. Well, you're the one, you're the yeah. one seeing it. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I try to work in as collaborative a way as possible mm -hmm. on all shows. And I sometimes open my mouth more than other music directors do, I think, mm. in terms of, you know, it's not just, it's not just teaching the notes and hoping they come out right. It's mm -hmm. collaborating with with everybody in the room that I'm interested in, you know, and how how everybody's going to affect the music, mm. and how music affects everything in a show. Mm. There is no more. There's no art form more needful of collaborative people, you know, who can take notes and not be offended, who can give notes without offending, you know, getting people to work on the same show. Mm. It's the, the great challenge, making sure we're all telling the same story in the same style for the same reason. There were things that happened in the Scottsboro Boys that I've never, I've never seen before. Like what? I'm going to read a little bit from my book. Oh, sure. If you don't mind. Not at all. I wrote the vocal arrangements for the Scottsboro Boys, which was a challenging assignment as the show used an all-male cast, even though some of the characters were women. I had to figure out how to give the score variety and depth while respecting Kendra and Ebb's provocative concept. Using the form of a minstrel show to tell the story of nine young African-American men wrongly convicted of raping two white women in Alabama in 1931. Tommy Thompson's script was pointedly irreverent. Susan Stroman staged it using 11 chairs and a few boards. Those chairs and boards became a train, a jail, a courtroom, and anything else she needed. The result was starkly simple and boundlessly imaginative. The minstrel show concept put enormous pressure on the actors, who had to sing superbly, dance ferociously, and change characters and sexes instantaneously. As the grueling first week of rehearsal ended, the actors were realizing how physically demanding the show would be to perform. We were asking the impossible. The singing was challenging, the dancing was exhausting, and doing them simultaneously was inconceivable. Upset and tired, they held the cast meeting after rehearsal. The creative team was not invited. We had a meeting of our own, disappointed that we might have to simplify the choreography and vocal arrangements. I paged through the score, looking for passages I could adjust. The next morning, the actors asked to have a word with the creative team. Coleman Domingo, who played several roles in the show, stood to speak for the cast. Here it comes, I thought. Coleman told us that the actors had decided as a group that the answer to the seemingly impossible demands being placed upon them was, yes, we can. 
The only accommodation they asked for was our patients. They hurled themselves into the work, supporting each other through the challenges, determined to realize the vision we had for the show. It was an honor to watch that company succeed, achieving things they hadn't thought possible. My favorite production photo is of the cast in midair, suspended over the stage, literally flying. Their mouths are all wide open. They're singing at the top of their lungs. It was an extraordinary company. It would have to be, to be, yeah. to be, and, and that's the thing is like, it's one thing for Candor and Ebb to have this concept and for Susan Stroman and, and you and, and, and David Thompson to bring it to life, mm. but to, you know, you need nine actors who can that's right. do that or it's just not going to work. In, in in any way they were superhuman and it i mean if you you can watch and i encourage everyone too i mean the, their tony performance gives you a taste of it but it's still <laughs> just like you know you, i can't imagine what it was like to be and expect what's so funny is to me and also the the um the cast recording being the off-broadway production yeah um slightly different than the Broadway. right which was at the Vineyard, which is a, a, a theater I've, I've been in and, 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 had, and had and had a show in it was it is such a, like a great so off-Broadway small. house. <laughs> small, intimate. The, that yeah. would have been especially right. uncomfortable. You you know? in jail with those boys. Right. Because you're, you're right on top of them, you know, even no in the back row. And there must have been a great satisfaction in, in bringing it to the stage after, you know, years of, of it not having been. Well, yeah, until it closed. Mm-hmm. Right. We, it did not get the, the Broadway run that we were hoping for. Mm-hmm. I don't know why... I don't know why it didn't catch on at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, well, it did in London, correct? Like after it did very well in London. Yeah, it, it certainly did well off Broadway. We did well in Minneapolis also hmm. before coming to Broadway. But I don't know. People say it sounded like a history lesson, or they just didn't know what it was. I think once they were in the theater, they enjoyed it, but nobody was buying tickets. It's a hard. I mean. It's a hard sell on its on its merits, but I think that you know we should have just called it the Phantom of the Opera. And <laughs> let it be what it was. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera with an F, and just, <laughs> so you can avoid the the copyright the copyright issue. I should say though, um, because you read from it, well, was a nice segue into it. You wrote a book. I did. You yes, wrote a book it. called Facing the Music. Facing the music about your your life and experience. What inspired you to to do this? Well, oh, that's a nice question. I um, I gave a commencement address uh, six years ago at the school up in Lake Placid where I had um, gone as a kid, and there was this lovely publisher lady who uh, saw the commencement address and she was quite moved by it and suggested that I write a book. So six years later, I, I called her up and said, I have a book. She said, okay, bring it out for Christmas. <laughs> it took a long time to write, but it was a great experience. And it ended up being about my you know, music directing career on Broadway and the, the strange and funny people that I encountered along the way. Mm. But also, it's a story about the teachers who got me there. Mm. And how important that mentoring is of, of 
craft in the theater. That's the only way we learn. We learn from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody taught me how to be a good music director. Mm-hmm. I learned by doing it, and by imitating and by asking strange questions. And, um, it's, a, it's a very hands-on experience, mm-hmm. getting better in the theater. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's the only the only way to learn theater to me is to get in, put on a show, right. run it, close it, and then go. Okay, what went right and what went wrong? Because yeah, it's it's the, there's no other experience like it. Coming back to Scottsboro Boys uh, for a second, though, I do want to ask because I ask everybody uh, on the show, what is your? Do you have a favorite song in Scottsboro Boys? I've never asked this of somebody who was so intimately involved with the show before. Well, go back home. It just touches me. Mm. Every time I hear it, it's such a beautiful melody, so simple, like the ultimate candor song. Um, and the way um, Joshua and Brandon sang it was just so extraordinary. Mm. I think that would be my favorite. I do love the, I will say, the thing that took me off guard re-listening, because I hadn't listened to it in a number of years, was I'd forgotten that they take over the finale. Right. They take charge of the finale in a in a very serious way in a way that is again like like a good ending is it's surprising but inevitable because of course they do they they're forced to do this performance but they will do it their way their way and project that into the future which you know ties into the theme because which is kind of the theme throughout there's a great theme running through the show of telling the truth and it starts Right. right at the beginning when one of the boys asks can we tell the truth this time when we do it and has that great sort of very theater of the absurd or, or sort of leading answer. We always tell the truth. It's like, oh, great. Okay. <laughs> great. Good, good, good. Um, but it does really get to with, you know, up through um, Never Too Late and Zatso, they finally do at the end tell their the truth. They get to present that. And then that goes forward into into the finale, the actual ending of the, the show at the bus stop. I love the show. And it, it's it's one that people don't talk about much. Mm-hmm. So thank you for keeping it alive a little bit. Here. Sure, happy. I'm happy for people to find. If you haven't heard it, you absolutely have to to go get it. It's a, it's yeah. It's 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 startling. It is shockingly relevant, and it is timeless in the way great theater is to me. It is it is completely timeless. Um, where can people find your book? Facing the music, a Broadway memoir. All right, that's what it's called today. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Still time, to, still time to change it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, I did, I've been doing some readings up and around and people are enjoying it. And I, I, a lot of very funny things have happened to me. So I'm trying to capture as many of them. As Good. I can. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to share, to share these stories because they're, they're absolutely hilarious and you can find it at, let's see, it's facing the music DL on Instagram. David, thank you so much for, for doing this. This is a wonderful my conversation. Pleasure. What a treat to be able to talk about some of my favorite shows. Lying all alone I'm thinking Staring at the stars I wonder Since I've been away I'm lonely When I'm gonna go back home Walking through the happen right before your eyes things happen 
soon enough you're lost and thank you when I'm gonna go back home oh me oh my time goes slow where's it gone to I don't the original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to David Loud for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Bethany.